He's retired from the NYPD. He's here to talk about the events around 9-11, the World Trade Center terror attack. He's also here to talk about his career working undercover in organized crime investigation and his comedic look at law enforcement. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. Of all the radio stations in the United States, there's only one show like ours, the Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. And on Facebook, there's only one official page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. That's Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. When you get there, click like and follow. Calling us from the west coast of Florida, we have John McNally on the phone. He is a retired NYPD. He also is known as Vic Ferrari. And the reason I bring that up is because he has written several books under the name of Vic Ferrari. John, Vic, I'm going to call you from Vic here on out. Thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Thank you, Jane. Thank you for having me on your show. It's a pleasure to have you here, and thank you for your service. I'm I'm trying to get much better at telling people that. Funny thing is, I've been thanked more for my service since I retired than I ever did on the job, and I never know quite how to answer that, what to say. So now I just say you're welcome. Yeah, it works for me. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> so you did what? How many years in the NYPD? I did twenty. I had a wonderful twenty-year career with the New York City Police Department. Got you. And so you started before the World Trade Center terrorist attack, nine eleven. Correct. Yes, I was hired in nineteen eighty-seven. So um, pre nine eleven, I had actually um, I was I probably had about fourteen, thirteen, fourteen years on the job when when that occurred. So you were not a rookie by any stretch of the imagination when that occurred. No, I was I was pretty much a well-seasoned detective. The reason I say that is there's a distinct difference in the progression of law enforcement officers. When you're brand new, you're a rookie out of the academy, your first couple of years, you're really learning. And when I came to the academy, I really didn't know what was going on. I thought I did. I thought I was prepared. I really wasn't. By the time you hit seven-year mark, people start getting really experienced. Ten-year mark, they're definitely very experienced. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. And and the thing with the NYPD is when you're a rookie cop in a New York City uh, station house, the old timers look at you like you're from out of space. Um, they really don't know quite what to make of you. They don't really talk to you. They don't really offer information. So you're, you're pretty much on your own until they they see that you're, you're you're a decent guy and then they'll warm up to you. But you, you got to keep your eyes open and, and your mouth shut. Yeah, and you've got to prove yourself. I, I, same way in Baltimore. We had a lot of young people when I started, but you, you have to prove yourself and prove that you are the real deal and that you have honesty and integrity. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and you know this, uh, guys with big mouths or know-it-alls, uh, they're not going to be treated well. No, they certainly weren't. And we avoided them like a passion. And I got to address the, the elf in the closet because people have this mindset. Granted, there's the Serpico days and before that. People have this mindset that there's a thin blue line of silence that we cover for each other all the time. 
and there's nothing that could be further than the truth. I, I just want people to understand something. There's no way I was going to risk going to jail, losing my health insurance, my benefits for me, my family, because of stupidity someone else did. It just wasn't going to happen. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. And if there's one thing the New York City Police Department makes no bones about, it's, it's police corruption. I mean, in my books, I write about this, that when you're in the academy from the moment you're hired, they tell you you're going to be fired. I mean, they have district attorneys that's, uh, that specialties of prosecuting police corruption come in and, and the academy and give these fiery sermons and they bring out, they show you videos of ex-cops going to jail. So you're 100% right. There's, there's none of that where you're covering up for guys. I mean, it's one of those, if you see something, you say something. Yeah, it's been that way for as long as I can remember. So I'm glad we covered that. And we got the same thing. We were told early on, hey, it's almost as if it was, we're going to treat everybody like you're a common criminal until you're proven otherwise. Correct. Yeah, that's what I was. I had mentioned earlier that rookie cops, um, the old timers, really they're not going to risk their their reputations or their pensions on some kid that you know might be bad. No, absolutely not. So I want to go your career. You're on a job quite a while. You've already seen a lot. You've already done a lot. And then, you know, I remember September 11th. I was long retired from police work. I was out of it. I was watching the videos. My first one was like, ah, this is, maybe it's an accident. Something weird happening here. And then the second one was no doubt about it. You barely missed the collapse of World Trade Centers, correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, On 9-11, that particular day, I started my morning at seven o'clock in the morning in the Bronx. I was a detective in the auto crime division. And that particular day, my sergeant and I was supposed to respond down to Manhattan and sign up a confidential informant. I had arrested this guy for stolen vehicles, and he was going to give up somebody in Department of Motor Vehicles pumping out driver's licenses. So anyway, we were supposed to have a meeting at 9 a.m. with the district attorney and his, his attorney and work out an arrangement. So I'm waiting around the Bronx office about 8 o'clock, and my sergeant is running late. And when he walks through the door about 8.15, I says, hey, you know, come on. we got to get going. We're going to be late. He says, yeah, 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 yeah. So while he's around the office, a cop from downstairs, they were watching television, comes running up into our office and says, hey, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. So we put on CNN or Fox like everybody else, and we're watching it unfold, and then the second plane hits. And we're like, well, this isn't an accident. Obviously, we thought the first one could have been like a Cessna or something, but we saw, you know, we saw it in real time. The second plane hit the next tower. We knew all bets were off. So basically, everybody was was told, don't leave the office, put on your uniform, and stand by, and just wait for further instructions. Correct. And uh, probably about an hour or so later, we uh, were put in different vehicles and we drove down. We were driving down to Manhattan and it was like a scene out of a movie. I mean, we, we, there was no one around. We went down the West Side Highway. We parked. And I mean, you just saw the debris just blowing around, blowing around. I mean, the, the towers had already fallen. So had I gone down to court that day and you know, that would have unfolded more than likely. I probably would have been down on the ground trying to help people and, and probably I would have been killed. You're on the job for a while. You've gotten to the point where you've seen everything. Nothing really shocks you. you you're not surprised by anything. But I'm going to tell you right now, Vic, I was devastated by what I saw. And I was like, my, I was slack-jawed. I couldn't believe what was happening. Was it the same for you guys? Yeah. And, and like we were talking about earlier, I, I already had 13 or 14 years experience. So, I had seen, you know, death and evil before, but not on this magnitude. So 
I mean, I was prepared enough that I wasn't going to come unglued, but at the same time, I felt like a child seeing something for the first time that you just really can't wrap your head around. And um, basically, they gave us paper masks, and we my unit was about 100 guys, and we marched in, I think, through, down Broadway. And the thing that I'll never forget is it was a ghost town, and you had all this debris and white soot raining down on us. And all you could see on the street, and I'll never forget this, was thousands upon thousands of women's high heel shoes. So when the women were fleeing the financial district, they couldn't run in high heel shoes. So what did they do? They took their, their shoes off and just abandoned them. So we're walking through sitting soot and high heel shoes, and uh, we made our way into a building. And the maintenance people, believe it or not, were still around. I couldn't believe that. So they let us in, and we took a break. They gave us water. And it was the wildest thing because one of the maintenance workers was from Afghanistan. And we had all heard Osama bin Laden's name before, but we didn't know he was responsible for this. And this guy just started going chapter and verse about how the Taliban had taken over his country and basically had given support to uh, uh, al-Qaeda. And, I mean, the guy, the guy was like a wealth of information. He was very pro-American. And uh, we took a break there, and then we went you know, we got closer to the trade center. Let's find out and, more uh, when we take a short break. We're talking with John McNally, also known as Vic Ferrari. That is his pen name. We'll explain why that's so important. This is a Law Enforcement Today show. So much more to talk about. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Missed an episode of Law Enforcement Today? You don't have to anymore because now you can listen to it on Podopolo. The free new app that makes listening anytime, anywhere so easy. Catch up on shows you've missed and chat with John J. Wiley right there too. Download for free on the Apple or Google Play stores. That's Podopolo. And John J. Wiley wants to hear from you inside Podopolo. If you're on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app, be sure to look for me and follow me. My name's John the letter J, Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y. You can also search for at L-E-T Radio Show. That's John J. Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y, at L-E-T Radio Show on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app. Return conversation with John McNally, retired NYPD. He is an author goes by the name, pen name, Vic Ferrari. Think of Ferrari, the Italian sports car. It's got five books published. We'll talk about those in a moment. For winter break, we're talking about 9-11. And you were responding, and we left off. It was so much soot. There was so much debris on the streets, and you saw all these high heels. And then you started getting close to the scene. Pick back up from there. So the sunlight barely could penetrate the debris. It looked like something in a movie, like James Cameron couldn't have pulled this off. I mean, the sunlight was kind of just peeking through the debris, even though it was a bright and sunny day on the ground around 9-11. It was twilight at best. And we're making our way through this stuff, the papers running. We're just covered in this stuff, this disgusting soot. And as we get closer, you see the facade of the World Trade Center, that metal grating that, that was so beautiful from a distance. And it's just embedded into the concrete, and as we got closer, you could just see the pile, and it was the bizarrest thing. Um, nothing went together. Like, you're walking past computer screens and an autographed baseball, 
it was basically everything in those people's offices was just blown and disintegrated all all over the place. So while we're standing there walking around, there was people down there. I mean, it was the craziest thing. There was a guy walking around in a spacesuit with a Geiger counter. So we're like, well, how, <laughs> you know, is there radiation? Like, what, what is this? The guy, to this day, I have no idea who he was. So we were down there um, from probably about 1.30 in the afternoon. They didn't dismiss us until about 5.30 p.m., and I remember they took us to a spot on the east side of Manhattan and they washed off our shoes and everything the best they could. And they said, listen, when you get home, you've got to take off your uniform. You've got to throw this stuff in the washing machine, take a good shower and be back tomorrow at 530. So we said, OK. So the following day, I went back down at 530 p.m. So you're figuring, I mean, it's a little less than 24 hours. And I just couldn't believe the amount of people from law enforcement from different agencies across the country had flown in. I remember on the the second day, I remember there was people there from Missouri with cadaver dogs. The response was just unbelievable. And uh, a day after that, I remember being down there and there was a camper, a little pop-up camper, like a little park several blocks away from the trade center. And it was from Chicago. A bunch of Chicago cops had, you know, jumped into this and it raced down to New York City. I'm like, I know, I, I'd never been to Chicago before, but I was pretty sure it was far. I'm like, these guys must have blown every light and been doing 100 miles an hour to get down here in two days. Just the response time and overall support from you know different agencies was, was overwhelming. I, I really don't know to this day, when I use the term guys, by the way, a lot of people are not familiar with this. They think of gender. That means men and women in police work. I use that term all the time. To this day, I don't understand how you guys managed to do what you did. I've seen videos. I've met people that had search and rescue dogs. I've had many other cops on that were on scene, on the pile for a long time. And to this day, I really cannot comprehend how you did that. Well, okay, so the New York City Police Department at any given time is between 35,000 and 40,000 members. So we're larger than a lot of countries' armies. So there was a lot of manpower there, but, you know, who doesn't get a lot of credit? And there was a lot of different law enforcement agencies that responded, but who doesn't get a lot of credit are, are the construction workers. There were so many iron workers down there and heavy equipment operators that volunteered their time to start moving this stuff around that we could get in there. And they don't get the credit. And I mean, I, re- I wish more people would understand that, that it was the construction workers and a lot of the union guys that were down there that did a lot of the, the grunt work, along with law enforcement. Uh, yeah, I, I've, I'd love to have some of them on the show as well. And I remember years ago, Vic, meeting a, a gentleman in South Florida who had a Rottweiler, because I'm a big Rottweiler guy, and his dog was one of the search and rescue dogs. And I believe he was a volunteer. And the amount of days they put in working that, the hard hats, a lot of people call them the construction workers that were on scene that spent years. We talk about the health concerns, not just mental, but physical health concerns for 9-11 responders. They have to be equally as affected. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, they they have a a thing set up where uh, everybody that was down there can, once a year, you go for a yearly physical and it's actually it's actually done really well. You go to a, a clinic where, wherever you live, and it's called World Trade Center Screening, 
And, you know, they, they check you out to see, you know, your blood levels, your urine. They do chest x-rays. They test your breathing. I mean, they're on top of that. I mean, we have lost a lot of people, first responders and construction workers, to these rare cancers that nobody can seem to pinpoint where, they're, where they came from. One of the things you said earlier was how they stressed, make sure you take your uniform off, wash it. I remember days where I would strip outside the door. Thankfully, we really did out in the country. But uh, especially decomposing bodies and other stuff, we carried cans of Lysol and we sprayed our uniforms. None of it ever worked, but I was so afraid of bringing disease or other things you're exposed to into the house to my wife and kids. So when you said that, take a shower, get rid of your uniform, make sure you wash it. Were you aware of how dangerous it was at that point? Or was it like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no one was real. It was one of those things where no one's really saying it, but everybody really knows it. You know, I mean, common sense dictates. And what became apparent was, uh, you know, a, a week into this that we're, we're on that pile and we're, it was called the bucket patrol. So we were in lines of, of people and then the, you guys would be filling up joint compound buckets and passing it down the line. And then it was getting sorted through. But in the meantime, over the couple of days, it had rained. So what happens is you have, you know, people that basically were pulverized in this mess and and the smell of death now was on the grandest scale. I mean, it was just, it was awful. And then I was a detective assigned to the auto crime division. So what they did with us was a week or two after when the heavy debris was starting to go out to the dump, the city has this dump out in Staten Island called Fresh Kill, which had been closed for many years, but they reopened it. And they started bringing out, bringing out there the debris and, and sorting through it out of the dump. So think of it this way. I mean, any landfill <laughs> is not a healthy place to be. On top of that, now they're bringing the debris from the World Trade Center, which had a lot of asbestos in it. So they had us going through. There were a lot of vehicles that were crushed. So they had us with the jaws of life, a different source, cutting these vehicles open to make sure there were no victims in there. But you're 100% right. I mean, the exposure to this stuff, I mean, they, they really don't know on what scale. We're talking with John McNally. His pen name is Vic Ferrari. The reason that's important, think of the Italian sports car, the Ferrari, the dancing horse. He's written five books, comedic books about law enforcement, his career in law enforcement. When we return to our conversation, by the way, I'm so glad you're sharing this with us about 9-11. Before I forget, I was in New York many, many years after uh, visiting relatives and this is before they had a chance to rebuild that area. And there were several NYPD guys there. And I went up to them. And what I wanted to say was, look, I'm sorry. I can't imagine. Because to this day, I can't imagine losing that many people in one incident. And before I could get anything out, I just broke down. I couldn't, I couldn't talk. And they were, they were great about it. But when we return, we're going to talk about the rest of his NYPD career. How he transitioned from 9-11 to working undercover the organized crime, auto theft, all that, and then his books. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Have I got a deal for you? No, I'm not trying to sell you a bridge or swampland. Enter contests for your chance to win great prizes by subscribing to the Law Enforcement Today radio show email newsletter. All subscribers are automatically entered in all future contests. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Scroll down to the sign-up area. That's letradioshow.com. (laughs) 
return conversation with John McNally, also known as Vic Ferrari. That's his pen name. He's authored five books about law enforcement, mostly comedic in nature. Uh, do a search online for Vic Ferrari Books. That's F-E-R-R-A-R-I. Think of the Italian sports car. It's very easy to find. Before we went to the break, Vic, we're talking about 9-11. You, you went through the Bucket Brigade. You went through all this. And eventually, and I, I hate this term, but you guys had to start getting back to some sort of normalcy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, after a while, they started my unit. We, they, they, they moved us out of there, and it was you know back to work, working on organized crime. How does one transition from the worst terror attack in American history to work in organized crime? Well, I mean, after a while, you're kind of glad to be out of there because just looking and seeing that stuff, it's depressing and it takes its toll. So it was actually a welcome break to go back to, you know, getting back into the swing of things, you know, how our office worked. So it was a welcome change and a relief to go from working 9-11 to basically being undercover, working auto theft and, and organized crime. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, like I said, it, crime waits for no one. So I, it, we just hit the streets running. Well, I, I say that jokingly, tongue-in-cheek. When I, I worked narcotics for many years in Baltimore, I was detailed DEA, and when I was on the list for promotion to sergeant, they, they transition you back to uniform, waiting for your time. And it was such a relief to be a uniform cop in a patrol car and not have to deal with all the other stuff. Granted, you had a 24-7 target on you. The, the anonymity wasn't there, but it was a welcome relief. So I kind of understand. Yeah, I mean, some guys really like being in uniform. Some guys will stay in the same precinct. I mean, you, I'm sure you know guys like this. I mean, they were really good cops, but that's what they like to do. They know where their locker is. They know everybody in the precinct. That's, they're going to spend a 20-year career in uniform. And then there's other guys. I mean, I, I always gravitated towards not so much undercover, but plain clothes and, you know, working the cases, see, seeing, where, seeing where the money trail goes, getting the bad guys. Exactly. That was more my angle. I liked, I was very proactive. I really liked uniform but i really really excelled at stolen cars in baltimore violent crime and, and narcotics and with narcotics comes violent crime but you made a good point there's a big difference between undercover and plain clothes i was a great plain clothes officer i was lousy at undercover yeah i did undercover a couple of times i bought drugs a handful of times and then when i was in the auto crime division i purchased a couple of stolen vehicles and dealt with guys that thought that i was a middleman um that you could make your car disappear so, but I mean, like you, I mean, I was more plainclothes guys as opposed to being a deep undercover. I, that, that never really appealed to me. Well, would you explain the difference, according to you, between undercover and plainclothes? Okay, so in my office, I mean, you weren't in a suit and tie. Um, we would do anything, we, we would do any, everything from pick off the garden variety car thieves to go target the organized rings. Um, we did search warrants of chop shops, body shops. We did uh, inspections at junkyards. We we handled cases where stolen vehicles were being exported out of the country. So, I mean, there was a lot of surveillance. It was Sometimes, yes, we were interacting them in an undercover capacity, but for the most part, we're sitting back. I mean, if your audience, obviously every cop has ever seen the movie Heat. We were kind of doing stuff like that, but we weren't in a suit and tie. I get it 100%. My mother, years ago, was visiting her sister in Lyndhurst, New Jersey. She had a conversion van. It was stolen off the street. And it was recovered several months later in a shipping container getting ready to be shipped overseas, I think, to the Middle East. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and every country, I mean, you can name, we had a case at one point or another, a lot of the Caribbean countries, the Dominican Republic, Jamaica, um, Europe, we had a case where the Chinese were exporting 30 stolen cars a month. So Russians, I mean, you name it, they want our stuff. One of the things that a lot of people seem to have a misconception about is, eh, it's just a stolen car. They're just joyriding. It's just kids out there looking for transportation from point A to point B. And granted, that might be a small part of it, but there's a whole lot more to this, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. And I call it the stolen car industry in one of my books because it is. I mean, if you, if you take a step back and look, and you're right, you have the um, bottom feeders, the um, like drug addicts that use a car to get around, or, or kids that joyride. But, I mean, there's big money in stolen vehicles that flows up to organized crime groups and, and actually different countries that are profiting, you know, on, on our wares. And thanks to Hollywood, we would think that first thing that comes to my mind is, uh, I think it's gone in 60 seconds, the high-end, high-exotic sports cars are the, the ones that are targeted for theft. But quite often, it's not the case. It's the Honda Accords. It's the Ford F-150s, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you steal a Ferrari, that's great. Who are you going to sell it to? Right. You know what I mean? I mean, even if you chop it for parts, who's got a Ferrari that needs a a nose or a fender? They're not going to come to you. They're going to go to a Ferrari dealership. So you're right. It's the Honda Accords, the Toyota Camrys that are stolen for their parts. They're tagged, which means they change the vehicle identification number for resale. And they're even shipped. A lot of times, you're right, the high-end vehicles just bring so much heat. Now, that's not to say they're not stolen. And the high-end vehicles that are stolen generally are either tagged with a VIN number is changed and goes to a high, you know, someone with a lot of money that can hide it in their, their barn somewhere, or it, go, it, it leaves the country. I think there was a time when the Ford Taurus was like the number one selling car in America and also the most stolen because of body parts. Absolutely, because the more popular vehicle is, everyone has one. They get into, there's more of a chance of them getting into accidents. And now there's a more of a demand for the parts. Well, let's go back to what's happening today. Catalytic converter thefts. Uh, it's everywhere. Everywhere I can see in the news, people are sawing underneath cars for catalytic converters. That was unheard of 20, 30 years ago. You know, we saw a little bit of it in New York, but for the most part, they were taking the whole car. You're right, though. I mean, what we used to do is we used to sit outside these scrap metal processors on the Bronx and we would do is you'd see a flatbed truck coming by with, with a chopped up car on it. <laughs> you know, we're like, um, where did you get this? You know what I mean? And oftentimes these guys didn't have an answer or, you know, they were, they were contracted out to pick it up and, oh yeah, yeah, I got this off of Boston road and then we'd go, you know, and get a search warrant. But yeah, catalytic converters really wasn't a big deal, but now I'm on, you know, I see it on these different law enforcement websites. It, it's a tremendous thing for bad guys. The other thing I really don't understand and I'll get off my soapbox on this one, is the amount of handguns that are stolen out of cars. Some places call them car burglaries. We called them theft from autos. Didn't matter what it was. You know, I'm a retired cop. I'd never leave a gun in a car, ever. But are you amazed at the amount of weapons that are taken out of cars? Well, you just just hit the nail on the head. You said you're retired law enforcement. You would never leave a gun in a car. Neither would I. (laughs) You know what I mean? When you're a cop and you work in law enforcement... What do they tell you? If you lose your gun or you lose your shield or you lose your ID card, you're in big trouble. So in New York, if you lose any of those things, you're going to get hit with the loss of 30 vacation days, and, and they're going to put you on a year of disciplinary probation. And if you get in trouble at anything during that time, they're going to fire you. 
So cops have that mindset. I'm not losing this thing. This isn't a toy. This is this where I go, it goes, or it's getting locked in a safe somewhere. Civilians, you know, they watch too much TV. They go out and they get a concealed carry permit, and I'm not against that at all, but you have to respect that you have something that if it's not in your reach, someone else can use it to harm someone else. One of the biggest fears I had, and you know, I don't get nightmares very frequently. The longer I'm retired from police work, the less they occur, but there's frequent ones. One is the gun doesn't work. It, it, you shoot and it dribbles out, or, or God forbid, you, you hit another cop or an innocent person in a gunfight. But there's always the fear that that gun is taken by a criminal and used in an act of violence against someone else. And in a way, you kind of hit on it. No, no, no one wants that kind of burden placed on them. The disciplinary action, everything else is one thing. But the thought of my service weapon was used to commit a murder somewhere else by somebody else is something that makes every cop's skin crawl. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. We are talking with John McNally, a.k.a. His pen name is Vic Ferrari. Check out Vic Ferrari Books. Think of the sports car. We've got so much more to talk about. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. There's only one official Facebook page. What you do, you do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. Click like and follow. There you'll find updates about upcoming episodes of the radio show. You can contact me. We also find unique, one-of-a-kind editorials and news articles. That is our Facebook page, Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Be sure to click like and follow. We'll see you there. Return conversation with John McNally, a.k.a. That's also known as, by the way, Vic Ferrari. Think of the Italian sports car. That's his pen name. He's written five books about police work, mostly comedic in nature. Look, do a Google search for Vic Ferrari books or just go to Amazon.com and put in Vic, V-I-C, Ferrari, and you'll find them. We talked about 9-11. We talked about your career in auto thefts, chop shops, all that stuff. By the way, thanks for sharing that with us. At some point, you finished up your career, you retired, and you start going in the next phase of your life. Was that a difficult transition for you? It was, because after a 20-year career in law enforcement, I mean, that's all I really ever did full-time. So it was kind of, and I was happy to be retired, but it's kind of like you're on a merry-go-round and it stops, or, or musical chairs, and you, you don't know where to find your place. So I became a cop down in Florida for a cup of coffee. I really didn't like it. The police department was great. It was me. The game had changed. I was older. Being on the road is a young man's thing. I, I don't have the patience anymore to listen to 15 domestics or deal with drunks. So I re-retired. And uh, a couple of friends of mine said, you know, you should write. You should get into writing. And I go, about what? And they says, you've got so many funny stories about the NYPD. Why don't, why don't you just write a couple of these things down? And that basically was the genesis of what got me into writing police books. One of the things is we are known for having, I say we, People that work in law enforcement and firefighters as well. I can't speak for them because I'm not one. But EMTs, as having a dark sense of humor, you encounter so much that to everybody else would seem like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that happened. And to us, it's hysterical. I think part of it is self-protection. How would you describe it? 
I, you're right. I mean, most people that work in that world, like you said, cops, EMTs, firemen, um, we tend to have a gallows humor. Um, we know that death is out there. The average person, you know, like you just said about leaving a gun in a car. Cops always have that mindset, I'm not, I'm not going there, where the average person goes, oh, come on, I'm going to leave my door open. What, what could happen? Well, we know what can happen. So we, we have that sense of humor about it because we've seen so much and, and seen so much evil and seen so many bad things that you know death is out there. So we, we tend to have a sense of humor about it. So these stories. And by the way, when I retired from, from law enforcement, I got hurt and retired young. And the physical disability pension in Baltimore, I wasn't allowed to do anything police related. And I really struggled at first trying to find my way afterwards because that's all I really knew. And that's what I felt I was good at. I've since learned I'm I'm much better at many other things, but I'm very grateful. It was the best, worst day of my life the day I retired. But I'm very grateful I did not get into police work again. And when you said you did it for about a cup of coffee, you you said the game had changed. You weren't into this anymore. Yeah, absolutely. It just, um, you know, I, I was 42, 43 years old, and I'm doing a midnight, and I'm drinking six cups of coffee to stay awake on a midnight. I'm like, well, what am I doing? <laughs> this isn't for me. I'm going to wind up, with, I, I'm lucky if I hit 50 doing this. So that was it. I packed it in. Well, good for you. I think it's a smart decision. And yeah, that part of patrol work is a young person's game. It is tough on us. And I hated midnight shifts, hated them with a passion, and I'd never do it again. Yeah, midnights. I write in one of my books. Midnight is midnights are big game hunting for cops. Yeah. So the day shift is usually the report takers, the older guys. No one's looking to make any waves. Four to twelve tend to be the younger cops jumping that radio, answering twenty, thirty jobs a night. Midnights is when evil is out in a well. You know that's. That's when there's really bad people out there, and the herd gets thin because there's less traffic out there. And you know, if you if you're looking for trouble on a midnight, you're going to find it. The other thing too was, uh, I, I hated this in particular because I was very proactive, very aggressive. Working midnight shift, you get off at seven o'clock in the morning, sometimes eight, depending on what district we we're in in Baltimore, and then you had to wait around for court. And then you'd be in criminal court waiting till like one o'clock in the afternoon, trying your best to sleep on a bench. And then you get called into court and you get home about five o'clock in the evening and you have to be back at work at 1130 that night. Yeah, midnight. It's so funny. Someone was just asking me about that. And I said, you know, here's the thing with midnight. You're getting up at 10, 11 o'clock to be in at midnight and everybody's eating steak and you want breakfast, and then you come home, you want a steak, and everybody's eating eggs. It's just, you're so thrown off. Nothing, food doesn't taste right. You don't really get a good night's sleep. You know, you feel like you just woke up from a medical procedure or something at the dentist's office. Yeah, you're with it, but you really need another couple hours of sleep. One of the things I noticed doing a little research on you, Vic, was your background. And on the the Vic Ferrari books on Amazon, it says you're the son of an Irish father, Italian mother, and you pick up after a neurotic Irish wolfhound. Is that an accurate description of you? Uh, pretty much, I do. I live with a 120-pound Irish wolfhound. This is, um, the sec- this is Wolfhound 2.0. I went back to the future and got the great-great-nephew of the last one I had, and this one's neurotic. He pushes me around the house. He moves around furniture, but I, I wouldn't trade him for anything in the world. My wife and I, we have Rottweilers, and uh, they're the, just the best dogs. But the Irish wolfhound's on our list. Cause it's a- By the way, people don't know it's the largest dog breed in, in the world. 
Yeah, there's, you need a lot of plastic bags and a lot of patience, but they're great dogs. <laughs> plastic bags for picking up afterwards? Oh, I can't keep up. You know what's funny? Like, I'll go, I'll go over to right? And the kids won't let me steal the bags anymore from the, from the register. So I got to kind of hang outside like a perp and wait for people that want to donate the plastic bags. And I'm like, I'll take this. They're like, no, no, oh, we're going to recycle. Goodness. I'm like, no, no, just, just give me the bag. My wife and I have this conversation about plastic bags because, by the way, in Florida, they're restricting plastic bags everywhere. And I'm thinking, I use each one. I take one to work for lunch, and then afterwards it's used when I walk the dogs. So it gets three uses. What am I going to do when plastic bags are outlawed in our state? How am I going to pick up after the dogs? Yeah, I mean, considering you got a Rottweiler and I got a Wolfhound, we might oh, have to just dig a hole in Landmines. You kidding me? So I think that you... There's, there's a thing about Irish and Italians. By the way, you know, my, my grandparents immigrated from Ireland. They settled in northern Jersey, New York, Manhattan, Long Island, Brooklyn, the Bronx, Queens, that whole area. And I love and miss ethnicity. I miss ethnic neighborhoods. There's something magical about these people. Yeah, I mean, I grew I, I'm actually writing a book now about my childhood, about Catholic high school and growing up in the Bronx. And my neighborhood was Irish and Italian, pretty much. And it's funny because the Irish and the Italians really didn't get along because the Irish considered the Italians interlopers after the Irish got all the civil service jobs. They hated each other. But then a funny thing happened in the 1960s. They put aside their differences because they had Catholicism, and it produced a whole new breed of hybrid kids. I mean, I went to a Catholic high school. You either Irish, Italian, or both. It would seem to the the uneducated, the Irish and Italian don't mix, but there's a lot of couples out there that are Irish Italian. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, most of my friends that I grew up with. So you found that helpful besides your police experience and that dark sense of humor we talked about in writing your books? Yeah, and I mean growing up I could walk between both worlds. You know, like in my neighborhood, the Irish considered the Italians uh, gaudy and loud, and the Ir- and the Italians considered the Irish peasants and civil service workers. So I could kind of hang out in both groups. It was the, my friends bring this up to this day because some of my friends they had parents off the boat from Ireland, and some of the kids I grew up with had parents off the boat from Italy. So yeah, I, I thought I think of it as a large asset. asset. Well, the funny thing is, that very quickly we'll talk about your books. I have a good friend, he's, he's since passed, and he was born in Ireland, and the, the difference was, I'd say, I'm dirt floor Irish, and you're doily Irish, and you have lace curtains Irish. Yes, lace curtain Irish. Big difference in, in economic structure and, and philosophy. So back to your books, you've written, is it five books, and you're on your sixth now? Uh, I've written five, yeah, I'm on my sixth. And where can people find your books, where can they buy them, and what are they about? All my books are available on Amazon. Um, I try to keep the price point low with $10 a paperback. They go about 240 pages. They're, they're all filled with short stories, funny stories about my NYPD career. Um, and they're also available on Amazon. You can get them at $2.99 book download. So it's very easy to find, very affordable. Do a search on Google for Vic ferrari as in the italian sports car f-e-r-r-a-r-i the dancing horse books and you will find them vic thanks so much for your service and thanks for being guests on the show all very much appreciated thank you jay thank you so much i'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the law enforcement today radio show 
The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. We'll be right back.